History This Week, January 15th, 1535. I'm Sally Helm. King Henry VIII has a decree. As of today, he is, quote, the only supreme head of the Church of England, and he shall enjoy, quote, all honors, dignities, preeminences, jurisdictions, privileges, authorities, immunities, profits, and commodities to the said dignity. He's not leaving anything to chance. And just in case, he also reserves the right to visit, repress, redress, record, order, correct, restrain, and amend any and all errors, heresies, abuses, offenses, contempts, and enormities. Okay, that text is from King Henry's Act of Supremacy, which technically passed Parliament a few weeks ago, but today he makes it official in his grand privy chamber flanked by advisors and loyalists. And with all those words and all those commas, Henry is saying something very radical. Up until now, the Pope has been the supreme head of the Church of England, But now Henry's saying he is. He gets all those honors and dignities and privileges, etc. All because the Pope has refused to do what Henry wants, which is to annul his marriage. Henry and his wife, Catherine of Aragon, have not been able to have a son. Henry blames the Queen, and he wants a new wife, Anne Boleyn. The Pope won't allow it, and so Henry issues his decree. It's copied out and taken through the kingdom, posted on walls, even read aloud in some town squares. And now, the way is clear for Anne Boleyn to become the queen. Today, King Henry VIII moves heaven and earth to marry the woman he loves. And just a thousand days later, he will have her executed. Why? And why have we gotten Anne's story wrong for so long? Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 2009, Claire Ridgway had a dream that she was standing at Anne Boleyn's execution, watching it. Knowing that she was innocent and not being able to do anything to stop it, I couldn't scream out. And the dream ended. I woke up with the sword being swung at her. And I was just, I was so sweaty and shaky. Ridgway decides she needs to research Anne Boleyn. She was a freelance writer at the time. She'd always been interested in Tudor history, and she poured herself into the research. She started a website, The Anne Boleyn Files, and then went on to publish many books about Tudor history, including several about Anne Boleyn. So 
that dream really changed her life. Though she says she doesn't think of it as some kind of spooky sign. I always get people saying, oh, you you must have been really there. You know, you're reincarnated. But no, it was, it was just a dream. What really stuck with her was that feeling. Knowing that she was innocent and needing to to tell someone, to tell everyone, to tell her story. Anne's story was out there, but... It depends what people have read. Anne's been written as a witch, as a homewrecker, as a conniving sexual deviant, as a leader of the Protestant Reformation. But Ridgway has worked to pin down the real Anne by sifting through the historical records. Records that are not always perfect. Anne was born in either 1507 or 1501. I go with 1501. And she was a very fortunate young woman in that she had a father who thought that daughters should be educated. Anne is not from an aristocratic family, but from the gentry class, one step down. And when she's a young teenager, her father sends her off to France to work in the French royal court. And as she gets older... She was witty, charming, very interested in music, religion, very intelligent. People describe her as striking, memorable. She had dark hair, dark eyes. We get lots of mentions, really, of her eyes. Um, Lancelot de Carle, who was the um, secretary to the French ambassador, talks about how appealing were her eyes, which she knew how to use well. So I think there was something about him that made people look at her twice, not because they were beautiful, but there was just something, a magnetism, perhaps. She could also be impatient, occasionally spiteful or difficult. I don't think she was the easiest person to kind of get on with. I think she and her brother, in fact, were probably uh, people that didn't suffer fools gladly. But she makes a name for herself in the French court, becomes a maid of honor, what we would know as a lady-in-waiting, to the French queen, Queen Claudet. And around 1521, Anne returns home to England for an arranged marriage with a distant relative. But that falls through, and she ends up becoming a maid of honor for the Queen of England, Catherine of Aragon. That is when she meets the queen's husband, King Henry VIII. Henry was a keen sportsman. He loved jousting. He was about over six foot and good looking. He knew it too. Ridgway tells us Henry was careful about his image. He cared about what his calves looked like and whether his calves were actually better than the King of France's legs. Henry wanted to come off as manly and strong. He's said to have had his portraits painted so that he looked imposing and large. His wife, Catherine, was a popular queen, but the two of them had not been able to have a son. She had, we know, at least six pregnancies, and they resulted in a little boy who lived for just 52 days. Then a daughter, Mary, who later becomes Queen Mary I. And then, terribly sad, you know, all of her other pregnancies ended in stillbirths. Henry is desperate for a son to continue the Tudor dynasty. He's had an illegitimate son with a mistress, but only a son he has with his wife will be considered an heir. And he's worried that not having this son to be his heir might be a dark sign from God. He was God's anointed sovereign. He was a pious man. Why wasn't God giving him 
a prince. Years pass and no prince appears. So Henry looks to the Bible and he finds a verse in Leviticus. Which talks about how a man shouldn't marry his brother's widow for they will be sort of childless. That worries the king. Because before their marriage, Catherine had briefly been married to Henry's brother, Arthur. Arthur died just a few months into the marriage, but Henry is worried he might have sinned. Maybe this is why he has no son. At around the same time, in the 1520s, along comes Anne. And Henry falls for her. He actually had been seeing her sister as one of his mistresses. And now he starts bombarding her with love letters and gifts. He sends her a deer that he's hunted, which in those days, that was quite a good gift. I'm not sure we'd like it today. Anne is not really reciprocating the affection. In fact, she'd been seeing someone else, a different Henry, Henry Percy, before the king cuts it off. And when it comes to the king's advances... She's trying to sort of rebuff him politely. She leaves his letters unanswered. She even retreats to the family home of Hever Castle in Kent. She's trying to get away from him. She doesn't want to be his official mistress. But Henry won't back down. And you kind of wonder how much choice had in it all when God's anointed sovereign is wanting you. Your father works for him, your brother's a courtier, your whole family is dependent on the king. Anne may have felt like she was under pressure, but Ridgway says eventually there was affection between the two of them. However you look at things, I think there was a point when she did fall in love with him. And there must have been something about him that she fell in love with. Henry ultimately gives up on the official mistress idea and instead offers Anne marriage. I think that's the point where she thought, yes, okay, I'll go for this. And she sends him a trinket, which is a ship with a diamond. I'd love to have seen this trinket. It doesn't exist anymore. Ridgway tells us it symbolizes loyalty, steadfastness, and perseverance. And then Anne is sort of saying yes with this trinket that she sends him, that she will be steadfast, that she's accepting his proposal. And from that point on, is prepared to fight to be Henry's wife. She fully supports all the steps that he takes. It's by now 1527, and Henry wants to annul his marriage. His wife is against this, and so is the Catholic Church. They all fight over the question for years. Catherine's nephew, who is the King of Spain, threatens payback and is pressuring the Pope to say no, which he eventually does. But then Henry has an idea. It actually comes from Anne. Anne has a book by um, a reformer evangelical called William Tyndall called The Obedience of Christian Man. And it actually ends up in the king's hands. It's considered a heretical work. But when Anne's caught with the book, she points to one passage and it catches Henry's attention. Which talks about how rulers are only answerable to God and not to the Pope. And so Henry starts to think, why am I trying to get an annulment from the Pope? I am on the same level as the Pope. I'm only answerable to God. And so Henry decides that he can break with the authority of Rome. Henry, who had once been staunchly loyal to the Pope, decides that his marriage to Catherine is invalid 
And so he goes ahead and marries Anne, secretly, in 1533. And meanwhile, he has drawn up this act, the Act of Supremacy. Parliament passes it in November of 1534. Henry makes it official the following January. He is the supreme head of the church in England now, not the Pope. It causes complete chaos. If you'd been brought up believing that the Pope was the successor of St. Peter and held the keys of the church, and that this was a major thing. Religion at this time in England was central. It pervaded everything. Religion was an integral part of your daily life. You cared more about the fate of your immortal soul than you did about your earthly body because death was all around. You didn't know when you were going to die. So you wanted to live a good life so that your immortal soul would have a good eternal life. And now here's Henry, just changing the rules because he feels like it. Some people won't accept this. And they ended up being executed as traitors for it. Some of them are hanged, drawn, and quartered. They're treated abominably. It's just absolutely awful. Anne, meanwhile, has become the Queen of England. And people are upset about that. After all, Catherine has been their queen for 20 years. Anne herself is defiant in the face of all this public scrutiny. Her attitude is, I don't care what the rest of you think. This is who I am. I'm going to be queen. And she rises to the task. She mediates between the people and the king. She advocates for the poor. And the royal relationship seems to be going well. Her and Henry VIII described as being merry. I can kind of see a real meeting of minds between them. So it all looks good at the start. Plus, almost immediately after they married in 1533, Anne gets pregnant. And when she gave birth? She has a daughter, which is not ideal. You know, Henry VIII really thought that this was going to be the son. But Anne quickly gets pregnant again. She's being described as having a goodly belly in summer 1534, and then it disappears from the record. So something happened with that pregnancy. We don't know exactly what. The archives are silent. Then, in 1536, she's pregnant again. There is hope again. But then Henry VIII suffers a jousting accident. Henry had always been good at jousting. But that day, he's knocked to the ground. The way Ridgway reads the evidence, it doesn't appear to have been all that serious. But nevertheless... He suddenly realizes that he could die one day, and he hasn't got a prince. Meanwhile, when Anne hears news of this accident... It's enough to worry Anne, and she miscarries a few days later. And what's worse... She miscarries a boy. The queen is in despair. Anne blames it on her uncle telling her of the king's accident in a way that panics her. And the king? I can see how Henry would start thinking, wow, history is repeating itself. My wife's had a miscarriage, just like Catherine had a miscarriage. Is there something wrong with this marriage? Henry feels he must have a son. And this is the moment when he says, I'm paraphrasing that, but, you know, I'll have no sons by her. She doesn't know it yet, and Henry might not even know it yet, but Anne's fate is sealed. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. During his marriage to Anne, King Henry has been flirting with one of her ladies, Jane Seymour. And after Anne's miscarriage, he starts to see Jane as his potential third wife. He becomes convinced that he has to get rid of Anne. And so he goes to his right-hand man, Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell was very intelligent, an amazing legal mind, and perhaps harsh and brutal as well. He really was the king's yes-man. Someone that Henry can say, get something done, I want this done, and he'll find a way to do it. The king tells Cromwell that this second marriage is all wrong. Anne has to go. And she couldn't be another Catherine of Aragon in the wings causing trouble and having support. She needed to go finally. Cromwell, do that, please. Go finally. And so, in April of 1536... Cromwell goes away from court, sort of pleading sickness, and he starts his legal machinery. I think he gets his legal mind going. Cromwell starts building a case against Anne. The charge? Adultery. But not just any adultery. She is accused of sleeping with the king's friends. Cromwell chose people who were generally supporters of Anne. And he's also thinking... Right, I can use this to sort of get rid of men who I think have got too much influence with the king. These were all men that it suited Cromwell to get rid of. Now, he's not really gathering evidence. He doesn't even really need to build a watertight case because she's presumed guilty, so that he just really needs to blacken her and for it to be so, so shocking. Anne, meanwhile, likely has no idea that she is at the center of this campaign. She must have known that council meetings were going on and she must have got some idea that things weren't normal. But her first inkling is at the May Day Joust. This is an annual event at Greenwich Palace. People got dressed up in colorful outfits and shiny armor and jousters poked at each other with sticks. Anne and Henry sit together in their designated royal seats. And in the middle of the festivities, Henry is given a private letter. And he suddenly gets up and leaves her, and she never sees him again. Henry leaves on his horse. Anne stays behind at Greenwich Palace. And the next morning, while she's watching a game of tennis, 
she gets a message. She needs to report to the council chambers. On the council is her uncle, the Duke of Norwalk. He and the others tell her she's to be arrested and must immediately return to the Tower of London. She's accused of adultery. She is obviously very, very shocked. She describes later that her uncle's sort of tuts at her and um, she wasn't treated very kindly. She says goodbye to her then two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. And she's taken by barge to the Tower of London. When she gets to the tower, she just sort of collapses, really, um, with the constable of the tower. She can't believe what's happening to her. And she's taken to the very apartments where she spent that happy time before her coronation. That's where she's imprisoned. She's a mess, really, at, at that point. Anne waits in the tower for almost two weeks. She knows her marriage is over, but she's hoping that things will turn out okay for her. Maybe she'll just be sent to a nunnery. That sometimes happened to women that men wanted to divorce. And Anne agrees to have her marriage annulled. I don't know whether she's clutching straws or whether some deal has been offered to her. Either way, the marriage is over. Henry doesn't seem the least bit concerned about what's happening to Anne. There's no sign of shock, horror, grief. While all this is going on, he is entertaining women on the Thames. Not even Jane Seymour, actually. He's off with other ladies. He's having fun while his wife is in the tower and while Cromwell's building the case. When the day of the trial arrives, Anne finally hears the full charges against her. It's not just adultery. She's accused of committing incest, sleeping with her own brother, George Boleyn, Lord Rochford. And then, not only that, so she slept with these men, but she's also plotted with these men to kill the king. Anne is shocked yet again at the accusations. She'll stand trial alongside the accused men. And she argues her case in court. We know that Anne was dignified, courageous the whole time. Which must have been difficult. Her alleged crimes were read aloud. The indictments read, oh, they're terrible. They're they're sort of almost pornographic. I mean, her tongue in his mouth, it's just, it must have been so shocking. They were written to shock those listening. The other side gives detailed evidence of these alleged actions. Dates are put forward in the indictments. They're beautifully dated with the places when and which man and what she did with that man. But if you push on it, the evidence doesn't really make sense. In three quarters of the offences listed in the indictments, either Anne or the man wasn't even at that palace at that time. No witnesses are called at the trial. Anne and the men accused have no lawyer or anything. They have to defend themselves. And the jury... Oh, dear. Talk about hostile juries. Talk about handpicking people that were enemies of those people that you're trying. I mean, it's just... There's no sense of justice in this at all. They were not presumed innocent. They were presumed guilty. And the jury was expected to find a traitor guilty because it was treason against the the monarch. And you had to do your duty as a jury member to protect your monarch. 
On May 15, 1536, the jury gives their verdict. Two days earlier, all the men on trial had been found guilty. And today, Anne is convicted of high treason. And so is her brother. The sentence is read aloud to all assembled, and the mood is somber. The Duke of Norfolk, who is Anne's uncle, he's said to weep. He has tears running down his cheeks. Because he knows he's condemning his niece and nephew to death. Henry Percy is on the jury. He's the man who loved Anne before she married Henry VIII. And he has to find Anne guilty, like all the other jurors, and he collapses. So it's quite dramatic. Anne is taken back to the tower to await execution. There's one story recorded in the archives that happens on the day she is supposed to die. I actually find it quite difficult to talk about without getting emotional. In the early hours of the morning that day, one of Anne's friends in the palace, Archbishop Cramner, gets a panicked visit from a theologian he knows who's had a nightmare about their mutual friend, Anne. Her head appearing to him, her decapitated head appearing to him as an awful, awful nightmare. This man didn't yet know that Anne was being executed. The news hadn't got to him, and he rushes round to Cramner because they both know the Queen, and he wants to share this, this awful nightmare with him. And Cramner has to tell him, you know, that she's being executed today. That is going to happen. On May 19th, 1536, Anne is beheaded by an expert French swordsman. There is shock, and that reverberates round Europe. But for Henry VIII, it's like nothing major has happened. He goes off with Jane and gets betrothed to Jane Seymour the very next day. And as soon as Anne is gone, Henry tries to erase her memory. Her pictures are destroyed, her possessions and papers disappear. And this is the first act that distorts Anne's memory and makes it hard to sort out her story. Her own records are lost, and people begin to remember Anne in rumors. But many of the people spreading those rumors are powerful people who didn't like her. Henry does finally have a son with Jane Seymour, but that son dies about six years after becoming king. Then Catherine of Aragon's daughter Mary becomes queen, and she also dies. And so Anne's daughter, Elizabeth I, takes the throne. She reigns for over 44 years. And she tries to rewrite her mother's story, paint her in a better light. But this period is one of deep religious conflict, as England swings between Catholicism and Protestantism under each of Henry's children. Some people during Elizabeth's reign even begin to say that Anne was a Protestant martyr because she helped inspire Henry to make that first move against the Catholic Church. And some Catholics are angry. They want to blacken Elizabeth, and they want to blacken her mother. So false narratives of Anne begin to swirl again. That she was evil, that she had an extra finger, that the baby she miscarried had some deformity too, and that all that has some kind of dark meaning. The stories are dramatic and confusing, and as they've morphed over the centuries, they often play on age-old stereotypes of women. 
We're always having to kind of fill in the blanks and you have to bear in mind who was writing it, where could they've got the information from, is it biased? So it's a bit like being a detective, really. (laughs) It's only in recent years that a more nuanced story about Anne has emerged in the historical literature. And Ridgway herself tries to see Anne not as a martyr or as a conniving sexual deviant, but as a real person which takes an act of imagination. After all, Anne lived so long ago. It is so hard to get into a 16th century mindset when religion is so integral to your life and your life is so completely different to how we live today. But even after centuries, the drama of the story is still palpable. Ridgway feels it herself. For me, the whole thing that started it off was, um, you know, my dream about this was a huge miscarriage of justice and I had to get her story out there. And I think the feeling that this person, you know, they were treated unfairly by those people that were supposed to have loved them. Henry's love for Anne was what led to her rise to power. Against all odds, he made her queen. And then he had her killed it's hard to wrap your head around. And perhaps that's why people have been returning to the story for centuries, rereading the archives and rehashing the rumors, trying their best to explain Anne's dizzying rise and fall. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. This episode was produced by Julie Magruder. The associate producer was Emma Fredericks. History This Week is also produced by McKamey Lynn, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.